All right, welcome to Livestream Stars. We're talking smack today with Daniel Newman, that's social mobile analytics and cloud. I'm Ross Brand, and this is where we showcase talented broadcasters delivering high-quality content across Livestream platforms. And Livestream Stars is brought to you by Livestream Universe. For everything live streaming, check it out, livestreamuniverse.com. And to learn more about this show and see upcoming guests and past episodes, visit livestreamstars.tv. Um, I have a very busy week coming up next week. I'll tell you about it just briefly. Chris Straub, uh, the first person to live stream from all 50 states, uh, will be our live stream stars guest on Monday. On Tuesday night, Coach Jenny and I will be hosting our first episode of live stream news. And then on Thursday, Marty McPadden, formerly of ESPN, joins me for live stream sports. Uh, all those shows will start at 7 p.m. Eastern. And now to today's guest, Daniel Newman, an entrepreneur and digital transformation strategist, CEO, author, keynote speaker, live streamer. Did I did I miss anything, Daniel? I'm still at that part where you said star. That was about the, that was the spot where I was about to get up. I was going to walk out. Anyone, anyone walked out yet right after you said that? So, uh, oh, buddy. Um, no, I think you hit, I think you hit on everything. Thanks for the uh, kind introduction. And thanks for having me. So for those who, who may not be familiar with Daniel, he's, he's co-CEO of V3B, a marketing agency, president at Broad Suite Media Group, developing rich media content, working with brands to create media hubs for their business. He contributes regularly to Forbes, Entrepreneur, and other national and industry publications. And I have down that you've authored four books, all Amazon bestsellers, and you have a new book coming. Uh, is that actually out at this time? Or Yeah, feel free to hold it, hold it up. Building Dragon. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. I have five books. Five books now. You have four bestsellers, five books. Or is the fifth one a bestseller already? <laughs> it, it, will be by, uh, it will be by next week. So that, that takes a little bit of work and a little bit of marketing. But no, we're off to a great start. Uh, it's already been reviewed uh, very positively and uh, actually um, have a couple of gigs where there will be a few thousand copies going out, um, including a gig over that I'll be doing in Madrid next uh, next month. So, yeah, it's um, the concept is called Building Dragons and the sub is called Digital Transformation in the Experience Economy. Some of you guys may have heard the term digital transformation and some of you may know experience economy. And what we do is we bring to, we brought together kind of the ideas, Ross, that we have entered the age where it's about agility and adaptability. You can no longer build a business with a long, with a long view. It's mm -hmm. just not realistic. So how do you set your organization up to sustain in an age where change is the only, only constant and rate of change is exponential? So in the book, you know, we talk a lot about technology, virtual reality, 3D, Internet of Things, big data, cloud, but it's really not a tech book. And I think that's what's most interesting about it, Ross, is it actually ended up being a change management and leadership book. Because when the heart of it, what it's really about, and you know, when Brian uh, fans are talk on Cloud Talk or Smack Talk about this all the time, he always says trust, training, and tools. But it right. really does come down to a people and leadership book where you cannot get new technologies adopted. You can't build a culture that's ready to embrace change until you address the fact that the people have to want to change. Right, right. And, you know, I've heard I've heard the economy that we're currently in referred to as the knowledge economy. I've heard it referred to as the social economy. When you say experience economy, what exactly do you mean? 
Well, what I mean, Ross, is we have entered a time where no longer do we only purchase products and services, but really one of the things that we buy and that we're willing to actually pay the most for are experiences. So if you think right. about it, if you think about it, whether that's the experiences we have online, right, the experiences we have across the web, or when we go to Disney parks or a theme park or a shopping mall, right? When you go into a store, what do you notice the most? You notice the way things smell, the way you, things feel. You know, I was just in Las Vegas. Every single step you take through that city is tied to an experience. They know exactly the amount of light, the amount of, of uh, perfume to put in the air, the temperature of the room, the way people are dressed, where things are positioned. And what this is, is it's a very subtle nuance, but these experiences make a difference in the way we react, the way we engage, and the way we choose where we spend our money as consumers or as businesses. And is that something, is that a big thing that companies will talk to you about when you're, when you're doing consulting with companies? Is, ex, is the experience? Yeah, experience? Is, that, is that a big area where they feel um, they're coming up short maybe, or there's more that they can do to win in that area? Well, for, for us, where it really started was on the digital side, digital experiences. So for instance, when you went to a website or when you, when you saw somebody's social profile or when you join a live stream show, right? Every single one of those actions is an experience, but most people don't map out what that actually looks like. Most people don't consider when someone goes to their site. Now I'm saying the general population, right? Uh, it kind of goes back to remember Flash by Adobe when it first came out and everybody put a Flash site together because <laughs> right. it looked great, right? But the problem with Flash, what was it? Well, tell me, you probably know, but what was the reason that they, most people didn't end up liking Flash so much? Well, either they didn't have very good Flash capability on their computer or it just took too long till each of the, the parts downloaded, right? Yeah, well, it was slow. It was, it was slow. It was cumbersome. Right? As Ross says, in the it, it was terrible for SEO, so it was bad from a conversion standpoint. So both the company's experience and the actual uh, user's experience when they went to the site was bad. And when a person has a bad experience, all the data out there says that, like with mobility, right? When you actually go right. to a website and when you're, when you're looking at a mobile site, people's patience are very short. If the site doesn't load in just a few seconds, people will leave. And then when they leave, they don't come back. They don't go back and right. go to an, you know your desktop and then check out the site. They don't come back at all. So really what he experiences is it's tying that every single thing your company does is not only tied to a product or service, but it's tied to the way it makes somebody feel. It's tied to creating an experience. And that's really what is up to us as marketers is using every single one of these tools to not only give somebody... A, a product or a service that they can buy, but to give them an experience in which they remember. Well, one of the things that struck me, like in 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 some of what I, I I've read that you you've written that I've read about you and so forth, is that you strike me as somebody who's a business person first and a marketer second. In other words, marketing serves the business and it's a way to solve business problems. And same thing with IT, with tech, with human capital solutions, all those kind of things. And that strikes me that you have that framework, um, even the way you, you describe what you do at, at V3B, you talk about process-oriented, data-driven, you know, coming up with the right metrics to know the, how the business is performing as a result of the solutions you provide. Um, how did you, you know, sort of absorb that mindset? Was that something you learned in school? Was that something you picked up before you got to the, you know, 
the heavy the heavy sort of digital marketing type of roles how did you how did you come up with that that sort of approach because i think it sets you apart from a lot of people in the marketing space well so we all ended up here in different ways, right? Some people right. get on into this type of business. They they get into live streaming, for, for instance, or they get into social media because of a certain, um, you know, result they're looking for. Maybe it's a personal brand. Maybe it's fame. Maybe right. it's stardom. My start, right, came about building businesses, you know, and I have this quote that I always use and I'm saying hello to my, my brother, my brother from another mother, iSocial fans who just stopped by. Hey, Brian. <laughs> Well, you know, it's not quite the same doing shows without him. I've kind of reserved myself to only go on air with him. He makes right. me, but he makes me better. But, <laughs> um, but in all serious, like people, um, you know, have different ambitions. And for me, my background started really about building companies first. So the quote I, I often use is that I believe if you build the business, if you create a great product, if you show the results, then the community will carry that torch forward for you. Meaning right. that even the books I write and everybody kind of, Brian, I already did the three T's, buddy. I'm sorry. The, the, even the books I write, you know, one of my biggest fails as a marketer is that I don't love to market myself. I'm a terrible personal brander. And that's one of those things that everybody has to work on. But I have a really hard time holding up the book and sitting on camera and talking about myself. But at the same time, that is part in, in especially in the modern day. Right. of how you sell the story forward. But my real belief is if you create great content, if you tell a great business story, if you show results, if you get people to that bottom line, whether that's your company as an entrepreneur or you as a live streamer, as a marketer, as a product provider, a service provider, if you create results for the people who are paying money for you, they will through word of mouth. They will through moving your torch forward, whether that's right. telling one more person about you or paying you more to do what you do. And I think that's really always been my focus is get results first. And it served me really well, Ross. It hasn't always been the fastest path, is what right. I always say, but it has been a very, very consistent path. And, and if it's been as linear as a path can be in a career, you know, when they always show the, the path having to be a lot of zigs and zags. Well, by continuing to focus on results, and in, in my clients and their success, I, I've always kept clients. I mean, the retention rate of our businesses is extraordinarily high. So how did you get started? Um, I, I think you've been, say, in business, say, uh, what, not even a decade and a half, right? And you, you've accomplished so much and you, you really got off to a fast start in your career. You were uh, manager, director, CEO, all within your, you know, quickly within your 20s, right? Um, what do you account for for the, your career taking off so quickly? Um, you, you didn't seem to spend a lot of time in like entry level jobs and stuff. What do you account for that? I mean, was it sales? Were you bringing in the numbers? Was it your your vision? What do you what do you account for that having that success at a young age and and really accomplishing a lot in your twenties? See, if I was a really good uh, promoter right now, I would just hold up the book, The Millennial CEO. <laughs> So it's, it's all in the book and people should buy the so, book and that's well that's, no I, i'll tell the story you know what i love transparency see i've come of age one of the things in my early 20s i didn't really want to share the story because you know frankly i was a little bit embarrassed about the background so um so i've i've been uh i have two kids actually I have a third on the way i haven't mm -hmm. talked a lot about that but uh i've got two daughters 14 and 10 Haley and avery and i'm 34 years old so if you do the math if you back that up right i was 20 years old when i 
found out I was going to be a father for the first time. Right. Um, and so I, Lisa, my wife and I got married and we started a family and we've been together ever since. And now our kids have grown and we've had a lot of success, but this story wasn't just all straight, like from right, here to there. Right. right. I was 20 years old. I was a junior in college. I was on a soccer scholarship. I actually decided to uh, leave school. I didn't leave school, period. I went home back to Chicago mm -hmm. and went to Northern Illinois. I worked full time in a music store selling audio in the audio department. I sold Pro Tools and recording wow. gear. Okay. I was a music guy. And I figured out really quickly I was a good salesperson and it was a commission job. So I was off to a good start, learned that, hey, I can sell. And then I ended up just you know, in the spirit of what Gary Vee always talks about, right? And I'm not a huge Gary Vee guy, but the idea of hustle, mm -hmm. I really did kind of have that whole premise in my heart and soul was I wanted to hustle. And one of the biggest things that honestly inspired me was as a 20 year old, a lot of people I felt were judging me, you know, that I, you know, had a kid out of wedlock that I was so young and I wanted, I kind of wanted to prove everybody wrong. And as funny as that sounds, that was sort of what initially motivated me. So the sales thing grew for me. Uh, I did really well. I ended up getting hired by a manufacturer to go out and become a manufacturer's rep. I, I ended up uh, inquiring with one of the, you know, the reps used to come into the store. It was a Sam Ash music store and they would show us the new gear so we could sell it to the people in retail. Well, I was like, you have a cool job. I want your job. And so the guy ended up introducing me to one of his, you know, management and I ended up getting a job training people in guitar centers how to sell recording studio gear. Well, after a couple of years, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was running around a guitar center selling gear to guitarists and musicians. I started learning more about audio. And, you know, I was watching Donald Trump on, um, you know, and this was his old time, right? Trump on uh, The Apprentice in the fancy boardrooms. And I was like, oh, that technology looks cool, too. I bet you the corporations have more money to spend on the technology than, than the bands, the local bands and bars. So I ended up getting hired by a tech integration company to install AV and, and video conferencing gear inside of boardrooms and tech companies. So I worked for a, a, a job. I, I grew a business from like half a million selling to higher education and, and healthcare to like a $3 million business for a company called United Visual. And this is an interesting story. I'll come back to United Visual in a minute. Um, but I ended up getting hired out of United Visual, became a director of sales for a company called AMX that was owned by a multi-billion dollar company here in Chicago, a company called Duchess Wall Industries. Uh, they own Arlington Racetrack. They own Churchill Downs. So if you're into uh, horse racing and you you know heard of the Kentucky Derby, it was the same family that owns the track where the Kentucky Derby is held. But it was a tech company that sold fancy touch panels that were installed in boardrooms, right? They controlled the lights and the HVAC and, the, and all the audio video equipment. I did that for a couple of years and ended up, here's a funny story, Ross. I became the director of the Central US. I was 25 years old. I was running a $30 million P&L. I got asked by United Visual, right? The company I had worked for before to come back as their vice president of sales. So this was like a 140 person company. It was, you know, about 20 something million in sales when I got there. Um, I had a team of like 30 people as a VP of sales. I was 26 years old. And so not 18 months after I went back and took that VP of sales job, I'd worked up through the ranks and the family that owned the company moved me to CEO. So you asked me how I moved up. At 27 years old, I was the CEO of the company. I had 140 employees. I had a, a substantial P&L to deal with, uh, national accounts. We dealt with Citigroup and Motorola and McDonald's. Those were our clients. And I learned so much there through both success and failure that I kind of never looked back. So that's kind of like the, the story of how and why I'm wired the way I am is because I did all this stuff and really Twitter and all that, it just didn't really exist. So right. it was right about the end of my 
my time at United Visual, I was about 29 years old. I'd been there about three years um, that I would really gotten into Twitter. I joined Twitter December of 2010. And I started blogging about three or four months later, and the rest was history. Well, I totally get why when, when you were in your mid to late 20s, you might not share that story that you just told because you, you, you probably benefit from the perception maybe that you're more experienced or a little older than you than you are. Now at this time, you can share that story, and it's, it's an awesome, amazing, amazing story. Um, so I think also the fact that you accomplished all that before Twitter, before social the era of social media right gives you a, a certain perspective on what social media does and doesn't bring to the marketing and sales aspects of a business right i mean you can you clearly can see what you continue to be able to do without social media and what the difference that social media makes right can you talk a little bit about that um compare sort of selling in the in the prior prior era and now what what exactly are the benefits that social media is giving and maybe what are some of the weaknesses that you know can't be overcome with social media so every every year i do a um a trends report on forbes right they're my most popular pieces on forbes i do the 10 marketing trends um of course because those are list bait by the way another great story i have is about 12most.com if, if you I have think a chance to look it up you froze but, up, uh, you froze up for a second am i frozen am for I a back? second for a second you're back you're good so an interesting um so one of the things i discovered when i was still at united visual i did a side project called 12most.com it was a site the number 12most.com and it, the idea was every article in the in the site started with 12 most something Right. And this is a social experiment and it's going to end up getting you to the answer that you asked for the question. So don't worry. I try to, do, <laughs> I try to tell a story. I try to make everything a story, right? That's what live streaming is really supposed to be all about. So um, what I did is myself and a guy named Sean McGinnis and another guy named Sam Fiorella, we were sitting on the roof of a social media conference called Ungeeked. I just actually had seen a friend of mine who I've now co-authored two books with by the name of Olivier Blanchard, the guy that wrote social, R social media ROI. Um, and we went on the roof and I said, you know what? Everybody likes list posts. Okay. Everybody loves list posts. I bet you, if we start a site, that's every post is a list in the same format. We could drive huge traffic in a short period of time. Well, here's the funny thing. Within six months, we had gotten over a hundred people to contribute to this site, including Guy Kawasaki. Uh, we had Mr. Chris Brogan and, and this was in Chris's prime. Um, we had about 100 other high-profile social influencers, and we were driving 150,000 pages a month within six months to a site where every single post was 12 most dot, dot, dot. So one of the things I realized really quickly is that social can be engineered. Social can be created and engineered to drive a result. But one of the other things I learned that was so important is data skew, is that you can drive data that doesn't actually create any results. Right. So depending on what your role is and what you're trying to do, friends, fans, followers, likes, uh, clicks, hearts, all that stuff is really just that. It's just really shit, okay? It's nothing until you can tie it back to something. Mm -hmm. So what I learned from that experiment, the first thing was if you understand content marketing, you understand what people react to and what they emotionally connect to, you can drive the traffic that you need for any site. Right. But then the second part is you had to tie the actual results part into it. So if you're working with a company, where what are they trying to achieve? So getting 100,000 page views, if you're selling 
plastic molding injections isn't going to help you, especially if it was 100,000 page views from a bunch of social media people. However, right, um, if you're like our friend uh, Chris with the Yo-Yo Company and you've got a real niche where your community is on social and you can tell snap stories and live stream stories and connect to people, then you can find that channel to be extremely successful and engaging. So the thing about social is it's a part of the of the mix. It is one part of the mix, just like content, just like email, just like billboards, just like branding on our shirts, right? The Under Armour guy, or am I the Puma guy? Uh, the Adidas guy, I don't know. But the point is all <laughs> that stuff right. is just a piece of the mix, Ross. And what you have to do is you have to say, it's it goes back to what Stephen Covey said in The Seven Habits. Start with the end in mind. Where are you trying to go? And then let's look at the different marketing pieces that can help take you there. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that either um, marketers have or companies have about what you can do with social media? Where where are they putting their chips on the wrong the wrong number, so to speak? Well, I think first mistake you can make is listening to the wrong people. And I guess you could point to a lot of different people and say they're the wrong person, but just because you're you have a personal brand doesn't mean that you can add value to that company right and what i mean by that is it's oh you're really good at twitter you have a huge twitter following that means you must be an amazing asset for my b2b software company maybe but maybe not i i think that's probably one of the the big misconceptions the second one is that you have to be everywhere for everything right and brian and i talk about this all the time and he said yeah gurus know all but the the <laughs> the long and short is there is a way to use every platform for your business but just because you use it and have success with it doesn't mean everyone else has and that's why i've had i've had a million different squabbles across social media with people and and it's always in good spirit i don't get mad but you know like snapchat's been the latest one i love snapchat and anyone that follows me sees i use snapchat personally all the time I don't see yet how so a lot of my clients that are selling big data center technology are using it to, to push their story forward. Right. And not only to push their story forward, but to push it in a way that's more valuable when you only have so much time and you only have so much money and so much resource. So it's not, you have to weigh it against two things, Ross. You have to weigh it one against whether or not it can be successful, which I think every platform has a degree of success that it can have for marketing. But then right. you have to weigh it against opportunity, which is where else you could be spending your time and money. And a lot of times the data comes back and it's going to show you that platforms like Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter are going to be a better place to spend your time and your money. Right, right. Um, wow, there, there's so many interesting things I, I could ask you, but let's jump ahead to live streaming because um, we want get, to get open up the seats and, and get some people in here as well. And you host Cloud Talk with uh, Brian on, on Thursdays, 12 noon. Um, and you also you mentioned record some of your podcasts on Blab. Um, give, a, give us just an overview. Um, also, oh, I forgot, uh, Disrupt uh, Super Bowl 50. You and Brian and the whole gang were um, live streaming um, from the Super Bowl. You're going to be doing live streaming from the SAP conference coming up. Um, did you also do live streaming from the World Congress? Uh, am I thinking the right thing in Barcelona? Yeah, yeah, yes, I did. So I can start with any one of those things, but uh, or, yeah. So go ahead. Go. Yeah, no, no. So the long and the short is one of the things that Ryan and I came together. So we have our show called Smack Talk, and then we've got this concept of Smack Talk Live. And you know, Smack for those of you that weren't in there is not the drug, and it's not <laughs> hitting somebody. It's Smack Social Mobile Analytics Cloud Talk, and 
And the whole premise of it was, is we really did want to set out to prove that these topics were something that people in the live streaming space could use and talk about and find value in. And then secondarily, Brian and I a long time ago came up with a concept called upcycling. And the idea of upcycling content was using things like live streaming to create the content because it's fast, it's raw, it's transparent, it's real, your passion, uh, you can capture it anywhere. Everybody becomes a media outlet. Right. And then you can use that content. You can repurpose that content. You can embed that content. It becomes part of your blog, part of your social media story. It can be on your company website. It can be posted on Medium. It could be a Facebook, uh, you know, a, a note. It can be a lot of different things, right? You can put it on your LinkedIn mm -hmm. um, publisher. It gives so much more power for you to be able to tell your story and do it quickly and talk about these different things. So I, I really dug that about it. So what we did was we basically built a premise behind the smack talk in cloud talk to say, we can take this live to a, the Super Bowl. We can take this live to mobile world Congress. We can take this live to, um, to a corporate event like Sapphire by SAP. And we can actually help use live streaming, make the events more interesting and engaging, but do it in a way that the people are going to consume the content in real time and enjoy it. And then the company has that piece of content in perpetuity to create a, you know, continued asset that's going to be good for SEO, good for social and good for creating a more raw, real story, which a lot of companies, especially in the tech space, fail to tell. So sorry about that. I got a little distracted there trying to drive a uh, <laughs> troll out of the room. Um, Chris Strobas, um, has the SB50 Disrupt stuff been upcycled? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Chris. Uh, you know, SAP used that story. In fact, just today, uh, SAP had a news show online, um, one of their news bits on YouTube where the, I think it's called, it's just SAP TV. And the uh, host of the show, Megan Meany, actually reported on this three months later, uh, the amount of views, visits, replays, shows that uh, that we ended up getting from that event. Uh, they've embedded it into blogs. They've posted it on their internal uh, blogs and external blogs. And it's been talked about. And in fact, the marketer who helped us do this is up for some pretty significant uh, marketing uh, recognition within the company for for her innovation and and uh, drive for change. Wow. So what do you look at in terms of analytics for live streaming? I mean, it's pretty new, um, not new in the sense that there was Google Plus Hangouts and stuff like that. But, the you know, having these mobile apps now and anybody can jump on, anybody can do a broadcast, anybody can live stream as long as they have a smartphone and some type of Internet connection. How do you measure the effectiveness of you know, is, is live streaming working for a brand? Is it something they should even consider? What kind of numbers or what kind of metrics do you look at? Impressions, just just impressions. Is that that's all you have, right? No, I mean, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to amplify whatever your answer was because I don't. <laughs> You're going to agree. I don't know. Whatever you yeah. say is good. Thanks for yeah. Thanks for sucking me in with that. Yeah, one. Just, just impressions. <laughs> um. I want you to to measure the the re hearts the return on rosy red cheeks. <laughs> okay, so so here's the deal: is there are some softer metrics, but the hard metrics are very measurable. You know, it's just like, for instance, I always measure on Twitter. I measure click through rates before I measure mm -hmm. retweets and likes. With with live streaming, you know, a couple of the things I generally tell people: one is you can grab 
who's in the stream. So a lot of times when we're working with the companies, we tell them, you know, you see across the top bar here, uh, Periscope right. and all that, you can see who they are. If you're a corporation, you know, one of the first things you do after a stream is who was in the stream and who can we connect with? Who can we follow? Who can we continue to talk to? The second thing, we recommend taking all the streams and you export them right out of Blab, out of Periscope, out of Facebook in any way you can and you embed them into articles, right? And then you can incorporate right. those. So for instance, like we do through um, the marketing scope, one of the companies I own, we have a marketing mash weekly. We take the video out, we export it, you know, because we might only get 20 people to watch the live show, right? But what we do is then we have an email list of a million and a half people. And we will say, hey, on our newest edition of this marketing mash, we interviewed so-and-so from LinkedIn or so-and-so uh, from Marketo. Uh, check this out. And then we'll send it out on email. And then guess what happens? You send it out to a million people or 500,000 people, and you get even a 1% or 2% click-through rate. Now that piece of content just generated 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 clicks, okay? You take 5, 10, 15,000 mm -hmm. clicks. And what happens is all that data becomes measurable. You know who clicked, and then you you know you tie it to um, you, you can start tying people together and start exporting who's consistently clicking on our stuff, and that becomes part of that marketing funnel that corporations can use to push out the back end to say who's interested in our stuff, who's reading our stuff, who's potentially going to buy something from mm -hmm. us that we're continuously engaging on uh, with or on our different live streaming shows. So it takes work though, and Ross and I know right. that that's probably the thing that most right. people don't like is they just want to stream and get paid. And the and that's not realistic. Like to do analytics well, it's like anything else. It takes knowledge and preparation. What what are the tools you use? And there are some people out there that really know the tools inside and out, and I'll give them credit. Um, but you have to have the tools on the back end to measure and 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 analyze the work you're doing, or else I think companies can end up spending a lot of money and get very mediocre to poor results. But the key to getting all that additional data is is finding other places to repurpose your live stream, right? Like you said, to put your video into a blog post, something where you can then measure using other analytics that you have. Well, yeah, right? you have to. It's not it's not just that. But yes, I think if you're creating live streaming content just for live streaming, and you don't do anything with the data beyond that, then you're sort of just broadcasting. And mm -hmm. you have to ask your yourself the question is, how do you make money? If your way of making money is through the amount of traffic you drive and you get enough views that people are willing to sponsor and support your events. Like for instance, what we've done with Cloud Talk is we've generated enough interest, enough continued visibility, enough social traffic that we have brands that support us and pay us. So that's how we monetize the show. But how they want to monetize the show is the way we might promote an asset, the way we might promote a white paper the way we might lead traffic right. in, and then they can measure clicks, they can measure downloads, conversions, right? Leads are everything. And in the world I live in, in the B2B space, leads come first. You really start down the funnel and you work your way back up. If you're trying to sell people stuff that we're starting up at the top of the funnel, it's gonna be, you're gonna have a short-lived career in marketing. Because in the end, the transformed organization right. looks at data, they look at social, they look at mobile, they look at tech, and they say, this is a driver of, customers. We want to keep keep more customers right. and get more new customers. And that's what that's what they're willing to pay for. Anything else is just fluff. I saw Rachel Miller had a question. For some reason, they're not. Uh, the questions aren't coming up um, on the left side of the screen. So I'm just going to unlock the seat. Rachel, if you want to jump in, 
uh, feel free to do so. Okay, here's your question. I just scrolled back to it. it um, Rachel asks, is the success of your content marketing campaigns relying on smart SEO or social I amplification? Think I think that's a question. I don't know that it has to be an or. I do think that one of the big problems a lot of companies have that do content is they write for SEO, which ends up taking a lot of the, you know, sort of transparent, straightforward, uh, you know, raw feeling out of the writing. Um, I know I've done some work for a company called Skyward and Skyward is a, you know, they're an influence marketing platform. I do content for them for like IBM and some other companies. And the, the tool you use forces you to have certain SEO behaviors. So you have to put the keyword in so many times in the title, in the first paragraph, in the last paragraph, in the body. You know, you have to use certain tags. And I found that when you start stuffing the keywords inside the content and you read it back, it's like that doesn't really feel like like the way people want to read or engage with content. Or for instance, video, right? A video itself doesn't do well for SEO without some context to put around it because the search engines haven't fully been able to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, dissect the video for, for context. They will, it, that'll happen. The data will eventually, this will all become words as the internet becomes all video. But right now it still needs a paragraph. It still needs text. Go ahead. Do you, do you have a sense of how much, how many were like, is it a couple paragraphs? Is it one paragraph? Is it an entire article? Is it a, um, transcribing a, a, a video what is it you think that that kind of leads to more more engagement more more uh activity than than something else maybe i mean is there something you can pinpoint like you have well, a best I've, practice I've, I've around heard, that or like i said this is one of those like ever-changing things with the with the algorithms changing but i always heard right. 300 words minimum for the spiders to recognize the pages and so uh, that's that's what I've heard, but um, I think I always like to. Um, I don't necessarily like to completely transcribe Sarah. I see Sarah Moore saying transcribe them to be safe. I, I like to paraphrase them because, uh, but I do see value in both. You know, the problem with the transcribe is we aren't mm -hmm. quite so flawless when we speak. So when you actually read the spoken word, a lot of times we don't realize how many filler <laughs> words or unnecessary words or uhs and ums that end up getting transcribed uh, <laughs> into the content. So it becomes a little bit raunchy to read. But the the whole is I've heard 300 words to go along with the video is a good practice and to add the tags. But to go back to your original question, I'm a community first guy. I don't write anything for SEO. I write things to, add, to create, you know, to inform and inspire is what I've always said, inform and inspire, to educate, inform, to inspire, to make people learn. And then I feel like when they learn about the brand and then they associate that you're the one helping them learn, that's when they become you know, more intimate with you. They become closer to you and they wanna find a way to do business with you. So when you put those things together, you know, that's how you build trust and build clients. And that's kind of is you know, some of that softer side of marketing, but that stuff drives real clicks, real page views, real engagement, real followers that you can then start conversations with. So I like the answer of both, Rachel, though. I think you do it for community, but if you do SEO well, what happens is in time, you start with a lot of your traffic coming in through community, through social sharing, through amplification, but then on the back end, you're building the SEO to come up alongside of it. And my site, millennialceo.com is proof of this. Millennialceo.com by, you know, three years, four years ago when I was first 
blogging, Ross, 95% of the traffic was all referral. You know, I was a huge user of Triber. You remember Triber, mm -hmm. the sharing, sharing platform, a buffer. Right. Um, and then what ended up happening though, is by the time, uh, and we're about to evolve that site to something new, what ended up happening is about 25 or 30% of the traffic was from SEO. And we had certain articles that just performed tremendously well. And to disagree with Ross, who says Google isn't your audience, if you're searching for the right thing, if Google isn't your audience, if you say, if you're selling content marketing and you're writing about content marketing, if you're selling digital transformation consulting and you're writing about digital transformation consulting and people are searching for that and then they're finding you on Google, I'll tell you this, the biggest speaking gigs I've gotten have almost all been through SEO where somebody ended up searching finding an article I might've written on Forbes or on one of my blogs about a subject they were trying to find a speaker for. And when I'm number one or two on the Google search in those certain keywords, it's like a lock. It's the easiest way in the world to get found for that kind of work. Wow. So where do you think live streaming is going to go? I mean, if you look at, at the different platforms right now, Facebook Live's really stepping it up. There's rumors that YouTube is going to have a, a live streaming option and it's going to be, you know, mobile friendly and you're going to be able to find people on it just like you do on Periscope or, you know, here on Blab. Um, Blab has its its starts and stops and, you know, good things and not so good things. So, you know, <laughs> um, I love Blab, but, you know, I don't know where it's, you know, where, where do you see like for, for your B2B, you know, work where where do you see like the the biggest roi or where would you say okay here's where companies should put its chips you know here's where they should they well should i would tell you where to never bet against is you don't bet against facebook and i i don't bet against google right so you know my my heart is with blab but my wallet if i was investing would be mm -hmm. with facebook and google um google obviously with youtube has the largest video footprint traffic anyone in the world. But Facebook's kind of becoming the internet. And you can argue this case, but in India, they sell Facebook-only internet packages. You can actually subscribe and only have access to Facebook and see everything in Facebook, and you can live in Facebook. And, and quite frankly, that's what they're designing. They're designing a user experience because the experience is good. The experience is in fact so good that people can spend right. all their time there, find all their content there, find all their articles there. The more you use it, the better it is. In terms of what you see and what you don't, you can chat through it, you can pay through it, you can message through it. I mean, it can become the center of your ecosystem. And I think people are going to want to stream through it and they're going to want to watch their friends and they're going to want to watch their family. And if they are into watching live video. So when we go to SAP Sapphire this year, we used Blab for SB50 Disrupt. But as a live event where we're going to be interviewing people live on site, Blab is not really friendly for that. It's not really easy to put multiple people on camera. Right. So our plan will probably be to use a Facebook Live setup, a Facebook Live setup and some Periscope and some mobile live and yes, some Snapchat for some of the in-between moments. But uh, Blab will probably be one of the smaller contenders in that particular event because of the way it's set up. But if I had to bet my money on the community that bid on Blab, that bid on Meerkat, that bid on Periscope, I think Facebook Live is where it's going to go because it Unlike YouTube, it's got that strong social feeling and that engagement that the people who are using live streaming really want. And you'll eventually have the ability to have multiple people on on camera from their own webcams and so forth and phones, just like you do here. I mean, that's got to be coming, right? Facebook's got to be working on that. That's the one thing 
that every other app is lacking is the ease of getting different people on here. But like you say, um, one of the weaknesses of Blab is if you're on the road and you're in a limited space, you can't have four people live streaming from their computer in one little office or one little cubicle because there'll be so much feedback, it won't work. And, you know, you're probably not carrying around a mixer with you and, you know, an amp and several microphones and all that kind of stuff. So in that way, that is a limitation of Blab. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, like you say, if Facebook ultimately comes up with a solution for that well, and, and blows everybody So this technology away. is actually pretty uh, old. See, I came out of the video conferencing space. I worked with Cisco, Polycom in their days. This is an off-the-shelf codec that actually allows for four people to be on video together. It's, it's a licensing play, and it'd be something that'd be very, very easy for anybody else who wants to. No, very easy is not fair. Anybody with the resources of Facebook could very easily incorporate this, this feature into what they're doing. I'm not sure why or when. I don't know what the metrics are. You know, They'd have to analyze their own data to say, what's the popularity of this platform? What's the popularity of users that want to be able to get on a two, three, four-way video and utilize it. I know that uh, Skype added that capability a long time ago, and you can pay a little bit of money and be able to do three and four-way video calls. But yeah, off the shelf for the public consumption, Blab still has that, and that's still one of their competitive advantages. I just don't know how strong of a competitive advantage it really is. And you know, if I was not to promote a book, but if I was trying to build a dragon, right? And and if I was trying <laughs> to build so a dragon well in the digital transformation uh, age. I would want to consider what are my unique selling propositions? What are my unique value propositions that I'm going to continue to offer that people are going to pay for? Because right now, people want to live within Facebook. People want to live more within Snapchat. People don't want to hang out on Blab all day. Same thing I say, by the way, when I'm sending my haterade to LinkedIn is that, you know, hey, LinkedIn, wake up. Your platform sucks. Nobody wants to spend time on LinkedIn. Like... <laughs> I see the value of having all my connections on LinkedIn. I really like that part of it. But the actual platform, the user experience of LinkedIn is enough to want anybody to just, you know, just like turn off all their machines and go hug their dog because I want to get off of social media after spending five minutes on LinkedIn. <laughs> is LinkedIn still social media? Because I often, when I talk to companies from an HR perspective, I'll say, so um, I'll, I'll mention LinkedIn and then I'll say, so what are you doing on social media? <laughs> like, don't tell me posting your jobs on LinkedIn is doing well, social media. <laughs> because no, nobody's being social. See, I, I have mixed reviews. I mean, so some of the most popular content I've ever shared is on LinkedIn, but I don't, I engage almost zero. What I mean is I can share a motivational meme on LinkedIn and I can get 150, 250. I had one silly meme I shared about you know people connecting with me and then instantly spamming me an offer. I created like a little meme in some free off the shelf meme I shared on LinkedIn. That thing was not that thing was liked over seven thousand times and it was shared like three thousand times. It has the power. Right. Ironically, LinkedIn has the, a huge user base and it does have eyeballs of people who buy stuff. And that you can't take away. The people who are actually on LinkedIn that are not social people like us. They don't talk about social media all day. They're not taking right. selfies. They actually are there and they think LinkedIn is social media. So what we have to be careful as people mm -hmm. who are on the front end curve, who are actually involved in this stuff and using this stuff and know this stuff is to be assumptive um, and almost arrogant about our knowledge because what we're actually doing is alienating a huge percentage of buyers. But with that said, 
if Facebook for work is even remotely good, even remotely good, I think they will see a huge uh, shift of people who have used LinkedIn moving over to Facebook because their user experience and their focus on making it better has been so bad. Well, the groups have definitely moved over to Facebook, right? I mean, a lot of a lot of the time that I used used to spend, and I didn't never really spent a lot of time in Facebook in uh, LinkedIn groups, but now, I mean, just Facebook groups are taking off, and LinkedIn groups are are you know have been overrun by spammers and just become yeah. There's quiet nothing places, I like more right? than that LinkedIn spam that I get right after. You know, I I take the time to make a connection <laughs> with somebody, and, and you know, I pick and choose, and. I, it's like, I don't even know how to respond to that. It's it, you, you didn't even take the time to read my profile. And then the people that do it, though, they get really mad when you say anything about it. Like, that's what's LinkedIn right. for. And if you don't like me selling to you, then, then then go back to Facebook. And I'm like, all right, I guess I don't even want to, like, tell you what's in my mind right now. Because if I tell you, I'm probably, you know, going to get thrown off of every social network ever. But that this is not how selling works. In the modern age spamming people. You know, I always say that, like, would you walk into a networking meeting and just start handing your card to everybody and telling them what you do and asking them to buy from you? But here's the problem, Ross. The people that do that on LinkedIn, that is exactly how they would do it in a live room. So, and the thing is, right, the right. old school sales philosophy is law of averages. If I knock on a hundred doors and I can get three people to answer and one person to buy, then every day I'll knock on 100 doors and I'll sell one time every day and I'll take 97 rejections. And you know, if you're into the Brian Tracy and some of that hardcore selling stuff, then that's okay. But that's not how I get business and that's sure as shit not the way you're gonna get business from me. Right, right. And I, I don't think that you know more savvy, younger, um, like talking about millennials and people like that are, are so over that style of selling that it's just not working when, you know, and, and you get so many where like, you know, they all they had to do is go to the business page and see that you have like no employees or, you know, you're you're a, you're a family business or whatever. And they're offering you some software, enterprise the solution. SEO people. you know, it could have just been a click. It could have just been one click and you could have seen we, we can't we don't need. But here's the thing. It's actually the enterprise, it's, the, it's not the enterprise software. It's the social media people, the lead gen people and the SEO people. Those are by far the worst. So it's the people who actually <laughs> should know something about it. It actually do Didn't the worst. Better. Now, can can I bring up a subject that I, I felt very passionate about this week? It's come to my attention. That is emojis. Sure. I want to talk a little bit about this emoji. This is the worst emoji on the planet, just so you guys know. I don't think I know anybody who gives this emoji or gets this emoji that actually likes this, because I think this is the end cap to every conversation that's ever happened. When you say something, you take a minute and you type somebody a long note, and then you get this thing back. <laughs> I swear to God. That uh, it's got it's got exponential fuck off power is what that thing has. So just so you guys all know that if you think you are being nice, that emoji is not nice. It's almost just like this emoji, but it's worse. Sorry, had to say it. Something I feel very strongly about, and you gave me the platform. Jack Great asked. answer. Great answer. <laughs> So here's what something I want to ask you about Facebook, okay? Because, you know, Facebook, like you said, is basically becoming the Internet and everything they want to do is to keep you on Facebook longer, right? That's why they want you to upload video natively, not put a link to YouTube, right? So I was thinking today, when I'm promoting a blab like this, right, would I be better off 
not putting a link in 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 the text and just having like some very simple link like you know blab.im slash whatever or just rossbrand.tv that takes you to my my blab profile in in the image but not actually put a link in there so that facebook doesn't think that i'm trying to take people off off their platform i mean with that i think there's been some testing done so um i mentioned my friend olivier blanchard earlier and he did a test on this and we had two different uh posts same content he did one where he just wrote the context of the post and then he actually didn't put the link in the Mm -hmm. post but then shared the link in the comments and he found that about three times as many people saw that post in his feed as the people who he shared the links with so um I think there is has been, and that's not obviously a highly scientific test, but it, it has been proven time and time again. When I shared, um, I'm not going to promote my book, but when I shared this uh, last week, um, I actually put the um, put picture of the book and I said, you know, friends and family, and I used some of those keywords and not even really to game it, but just because I genuinely wanted to share my excitement with my friends and family. Mm-hmm. And then what ended up uh, I did is I said, I'm not going to put the link in here because I want you guys to actually see this post. And it was it was seen by most of the people I engage with every day. So and then later on, you know, since then, I've shared some links, uh, some posts with the link. And as typical, the engagement went down exponentially. So, yeah, I think what you need to do now is Facebook just needs to start its own publishing company and sell books so I can put the goddamn link into my Facebook stream. and People can see it. I. (laughs) So you could just link to something else, right? No, Instead I mean, of Amazon, you just link to a different with page. A lot of their Facebook. links is they're keeping them right in the platform anyway, right? They're keeping you don't actually leave when you go to a link. You click the link and you're still inside of Facebook, and then you have to- right. Eventually, you'll just read it in the window, like you watch a video. You just pay, yeah, and then you not? just read I mean, the book right there. I do think that most of these, you know, um, as Stewie Griffin from Family, I'm a Family Guy, you know, right? So, so world domination, ruling the world is in their plan. So I think as we all consider kind of our paid owned and earned strategy, we have to think a lot about the fact that, you know, Facebook, all these platforms stream, they're all shared media. We don't own any of it. And it's really scary because we're building our homes on rented land. Um, So, but I do think you almost have to build harmoniously your properties on shared media with your own media because i'm just not sure how much appetite for own media people are going to have when they can spend all their time inside of just a few platforms so we may be fighting for a a new type of uh, attention in the future now that's interesting though that you had mentioned also that that you did put the link in the comments and that that it still drove more traffic just not having it in the body of the post, right? Like I was thinking not even putting it in the comments, but just putting it in the image. Um, But then I started thinking, well, you know, most people are going to think, what an idiot. That guy doesn't know that you put a link in the the post. Like most people aren't going to think like, ah, he's ahead of the, he's ahead of the game. He's trying something new. They're going to think, damn it. I'm not going to go watch this thing. Guy wasn't even nice enough to give me a link. Just click. But yeah, but now I'm thinking, okay, if that if that gives you three times, you know, <laughs> three times the amount, maybe I will just drop it in well, a I comment. How, I even mentioned that I'm going to drop right? it in the comments, and then people know to expect it. And the people that want to see the link will see the link. I mean, that's what you got to remember. You know, the people that really want that are going to seek it out. You know, when you share a new book, you know, I'll instantly get a dozen private messages from people. Hey, send me the Amazon link. I want to go buy the book. Um, you know, I expect at least ten of the 
14 people in the room to be doing that momentarily. Send, I'll, I'll send you all the link because I don't want to promote right. it, but I'll send you guys the link and then you can buy the book. Um, but the, the point is, is like if, if people want to, because that's the whole thing when you when you create the, the great story, when you create content that people want to read, you know, people will find a way to buy it and to consume it. So, you, you know, I kind of stay away right. from focusing too much on where the link is, is taking them and, and are you adding any value? And I think that's one of the big problems we have too in the attention era is the way we utilize links. We don't contextualize stuff very well anymore. Um, I'm actually applying, I'm going to try to do a TED talk on this, a TEDx talk here coming up, is that I actually think in the age of information, we've we've dumbed ourselves down a little bit because we don't, we share complex things, but we don't contextualize them. In fact, I think that just ver validates the fact and verifies the fact that most of us don't read anything. We share it based on a headline and... and <laughs> Or and based I, on who we like. So it's like if you publish something and I don't have time, but I, I say, you know, everything he, he writes is pretty credible. I'll just share this and then I'll have some content for today. And he'll see I shared something of his. So he'll well, think, we, OK, Ross is a good guy or whatever. I, I mean, well, come on. Everybody's that, doing that, right? I mean, nobody can read 400 articles a day. I've got come, one of those chips to come through, right? right? It's just the information's implanted forever. <laughs> It just sucks it into well, your brain. You know, you know, the spend the time we're all trying it. to have that, you know, hey, I shared a hundred articles from these hundred influential people or people that I think are influential. They're going to notice me, pay attention to me. Then they're going to help me and share. I think I think there's a lot of that going on, as Ross Mintana said, Rossiprocity, but that we don't share even what we think is the best or most <laughs> useful content. We share what's going to get us most likely a praise, a response, a like, an engagement, um, support. Um the amount of pandering that goes on in the social space is absolutely disgusting. Okay. Um, it's the worst political system I've ever seen. And I've been inside some gigantic corporations. People, ju people just are so desperate for attention. So desperate for a response that they don't even care if it's good. They'll share it just because of who it is. And I think that's probably a big part of the thesis of that TEDx that I want to do is that I want to get away from that, I think if we focus more on the, the value, the information, the learning, the education that we can get, we can actually become better human beings instead of this rapid uh, track that we're on right now to what Mike Judge created when he wrote the, the script for the movie Idiocracy. Mm -hmm. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. I mean, this was an awesome hour. I, I can't believe it went by so fast. Um, why don't you show everybody the book one more time? Tell them where they can go to order it. And and you have so many different things going on that I'll, rather than try and throw everything out, why don't you tell people what links they should follow if it was still safe to put a well, link thanks, in a Thanks post. a lot, first of all, for having me. I'm glad the hour went quickly. Uh, you know, there's nothing like a bad guest when you're trying to interview them. And at that time, and you've asked three <laughs> questions and it's, you know, you have five questions lined up and it's 613. And you're 13 minutes in, you got, you got 40, 47 minutes left. So, so no, even if you were just pandering to me, I appreciate those kind words. Even if it was 13 minutes in and you were like, oh, my God, is this thing over yet? So I just dropped this book. It's called <laughs> Building Dragons, Digital Transformation in the Experience Economy. If you search uh, Daniel Newman on Amazon and find me, you'll find that and the four other books I've written. Would love your support. But you can check uh, me out, my companies, uh, V3B, Victor3Bravo.com, Broadsuite, B-R-O-A-D-S-U-I-T-E.com, Converge.xyz, and TheMarketingScope.com. Those are just four. We've got a few more companies and a few new companies I'm launching next month, but those are secrets for now. 
but I look forward to telling you guys all about them later. But Ross, thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you, Daniel. We'll be back next week, 7 p.m. on Monday night, 7 p.m. Eastern with Chris Strub, who will tell us about how he live streamed from all 50 states. Pretty cool. He's very active on Snapchat as well. Should be a great conversation. Hope to see you next week. Have a great week, everybody.